0: OK, my name is Michael Williams. I'm mid-sixties, uh, English, and uh, I've lived in Brent for about 30 years, coming up to 30 years now. But before that, I've been uh, in business and uh, dealing with companies within Brent, so I've had a long association with Brent. I moved to Brent because I was living in Labrick Grove. Um, we had three children, two very young twins... And the area was getting where we were living was getting a little bit sort of unsavoury, and we couldn't have the window open and you know hearing people walking on the street, wheeling and dealing and stuff. And an opportunity came to buy a house. So after a bit of hunting around, I found a house in Kingspring, and hence the move. Right. Well, my love of reggae has gone back to school days. I mean, it was. It was hugely popular when I was at school, you know the Desmond Deckers with the Israelites going into the charts and stuff and Dandy Livingston with his his stuff and Trojan was the um, was the big label of the day and After I left school, I used to hang out in a record shop I used to bunk off college and go and hang out in this record shop and this record shop used to uh, specialise in Jamaican prees because it was part of the Trojan um, company. And all the local skinheads used to go in there. I was a hairy, hairy student. But all the skinheads used to go in there and they'd take a pile of singles and they'd go through them like a deck of cards saying, got that, got that, got that, don't like that, got that, got that. I want that one. And just used to buy records just like in the, the way uh, the reg- reg- reggae... Shops used to sell pre's uh, years later, so I found out. Well, i have been working with it for... Uh, ..since probably mid-'80s. I mean, I was working originally my first sort of job of any description, apart from sort of a few little sort of silly little jobs. So I worked for a company called Better Badges, and we were huge reggae fans, but, but you know, the guy I worked with, Jolly and myself... And we used to make badges for punk groups. It was in the punk boom of the late 70s, 78, 79. And not only did we make badges for punk bands, but we used to make badges for local reggae acts. Um, And that's where I, in fact, first came across Aswad, because they were our local local, uh, reggae band. They were just starting out, and we used to make badges for them and for King Sounds and all that. Crew, the Grove Music Group. And so, it, like everything else, everything grew. You know, sort of, people would probably ask them, oh, you've got badges, where did you get those made? And they would... So we used to make badges for reggae bands, as well as making slogans and graphic badges, nothing sort of exploitative or anything. And then I was let go from that company... Uh, in about 1980 and my good friend who I got to know through making a badge for him uh, he used to work for Honest Johns uh, a guy called Leroy Anderson otherwise known as Lepke and we were firm friends we used to hang together at um, the 100 Club every week and stuff like that and he worked a couple of doors down for me and he was let go at the same time now the guy I was working with uh, working for, a few months previously, he got a radio transmitter, medium-wave radio transmitter, and I came into the office one day and I saw it under the workbench where we used to... It was a workbench desk. And he said, yeah, I've got this, but anyhow, he ne- it was never set up properly because it was a medium-wave transmitter which took a lot of um, aerial length. So when Lepke was let go, Jolly gave him the transmitter, knowing that he plays around with sound system and electronic stuff. We were all sort of one big happy family sort of thing. And after a few weeks, uh he used to phone me up, he used to come to where I lived because it was on the route into the Labor Grove when he used to come down to to the Grove and stuff. And he used to phone us up and say, I've got the radio Transmitting? Can you hear it? And we didn't even have a radio in the house, so we couldn't pick it up. Um, and unfortunately, we, we didn't. Uh, but then he did establish himself with a couple of other friends who were DJs, and they used to transmit on Sunday afternoon. Well, I, I to be honest, currently I just see things on Facebook. You know, people post uh, Facebook postings. But back in the day, it used to be... Really, it used to be flyers on record shop counters or echoes who used to do it, but when we were doing when the, this pirate radio station was set up, we used to obviously get bombarded with information people wanted their dances plugged, which we would do if it was certainly if it was for a worthy cause. when I was growing up, it was you know rock music i mean I, when I was with you know, still at home with my my parents. You know, it's rock music. Turn that racket down, sort of stuff. You know, and uh, and have you what? But you know, years later when I left left home, I, sh- I shared a flat with my brother, and we had a heady mix of reggae and uh, what's now known as new wave. You know, I mean, breakfast time would be a jug of coffee, something else, and uh, the meditations blasting full blast. You yes. know. Much of our neighbour's horror, but... Uh, I've got, like, it changes from day to day. I've got loads. I mean, the ult- ultimate track for me is uh, Stars by the Uniques. It's just beautiful, and it's so full of soul. Studio One. Um, <laughs> I've been buying records since I was five, I think. You know, but, but I can remember the first record I bought independently of my parents... Was the Walker Brothers album, which I bought in conjunction with my sister, and we put our Christmas record tokens together and bought that. but I bought the buy records all the time. Uh, it's very hard to say. I mean I, I work, I've been working with music f- since the '80s, and uh, you know you see crossover elements in, in, in music of, of all of all forms. I mean, um, reggae music encompasses. Certainly UK reggae encompasses uh, studio techniques which are developed here in in England. And obviously reggae's had a tradition of covering pop tunes, so the the music's gone back that way. But by the same token, um, when uh, people used to put out singles on 12-inch, they used to do dub mixes. So the mixing techniques that studios used... They used to copy Jamaican dub styles, so you sometimes get a dub of a pop tune. The pop tune would be on the A side and it would flow into a dub cut. Businesses supporting sound systems, uh, sound system dances were promoted various ways. Today it's done through social media and uh, community radio stations, but back in the day it was very much flyers. And yes, flies in barber shops and in uh, in grocery stores. You know, people putting on a dance would get, would take their fly around and ask if they could pin it up, and more 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 times than not, they would be allowed to do so. Uh, I can't dance to save me life. No dress dress code. No, I've always been a scuffy scuffy devil. Does it make me feel any way? i do like I do like the soul of reggae music you know of what I call reggae music, not the music of today i don't think I think it's lost a lot of soul, but a lot of the early reggae records were certainly because were a lot most of them were were soul tune covers i mean Studio One was just fantastic for you know taking a soul tune and, and making it a a tune for their artist. their artists became known for that tune and it's only when people look back and they say oh gosh that came from the manhattans or that came from the temptations or whatever do people realize how much has been adapted or as on the labels always used to say adopted i think that i think reggae is went hand in hand with certainly back in the day in the the late 70s with the rock against racism movement where you got. Reggae reggae acts, working with rock acts, and a mixed audience, and it was just showing that the two communities can work and enjoy life together. Whereas previously, it used to be pretty separate, and, of course, you had the two-tone movement came along, which was... It gave young black kids of the time uh, pop music that they could see on top of the pops, they could see on pop programmes, so it was... The merging of the of, of the two cultures was superb. Right. Well, going back to backtracking, um, after I finished doing pirate radio, which was the Dread Broadcasting Corporation, when we were taken off air, I got myself a job with Rough Trade, and Rough Trade was uh, an independent record distribute. Well, oh, it's a shop, but it was also, it, the shop had split, and and the it was an independent record distributor. And I knew the people who who ran the the distribution company and stuff, and they offered me a job. And I went in, and I was a one-man department at Rough Trade. And my first job was to tidy up all the reggae records which had been dumped on the previous uh, person in that position who was more concerned with going to the pub at lunchtime. So it was a complete and utter mess, but I managed to tidy it up and get it in, in, in order. And you know, set up the the department. But the problem was, was there was internal politics because I was employed by the wholesale company, the distribution company. But uh, Jeff Travers, who originally started Rough Trade, he had the record company. And he asked me to keep my ears and eyes open for things which he would be interested in. And then as it happened... Um, someone who I met through Pirate Radio, Horace Andy he came in and he got signed to the label so I was then uh, given the A&R role for the label with Horace which didn't go down too well with the the distribution company because they were paying my wages and I was working for the label so while I was working with Horace I uh, executive produced an album with him which was very sad because these politics kicked in. He had to return back to America. We finished the the album, mixed it, and he asked me to do the editing, which I did, which I was really flattered that he trusted me with editing it. But then I couldn't stay on and do the job of promoting it within the company because I was let go by that company. Um, I don't think it does really attract a younger audience. I think the... the my personal view of, of reggae music is that it it, it went from being, it's, it's a little hard to explain, but it went from being a sort of a, a, a music of entertainment, or it went into dancehall. I think dancehall and ragga changed the whole complexion because producers always follow the trend; they never stick with you know what's a, an established role. And when the ragga and the Dancehall, um scene arrived, it alienated the older audience, and it also alienated the venues because the promotion was so he- heavy, and the kids used to go and they used to cause troubles. So the venues stopped putting the acts on, and that goes. Then they then these venues they see a reggae act coming, they don't know. Whether it's a dance hall act or a lovers' act or whatever, they just think reggae don't want to know. Can't get the insurance, and people always think, sometimes think, oh, it's it's the venues have who, got a prejudice, but it's not. It's down to insurance when they've got to insure their you know public liability and they also insure their building. If they can't get the insurance or the insurance is too high for an event, they can't put it on. I do sort of try. I used to try and collect everything that I did, but I don't have it anymore. I've got uh, photographs from my pirate radio days, because that's although I've walked away from that, and the the next generation has taken that little mantle over. uh, I've kept a few bits and pieces, which are mementos. I've got posters. I, I used to like to try and collect. The shop posters, which, uh, for example, Jetstar used to put out and stuff, I haven't got many left, but I've got a few. Preserving the heritage—ooh, that's a that's a big question. I suppose, I mean, they've put up blue plaques at certain certain places. I mean, the, was it the Tavistock Centre has got one for the Simarons. Niesden's got the one one for Bob Marley, the first house that he lived in. I think that probably showing respect of historical places, I mean, I I think that where the original Trojan offices were, which I can't remember them, I must admit, they've now been developed by Flats, and it'd be quite nice to have some kind of reference to Trojan records, who are uh, uh, a very important um, company, because it was... Yeah, They used to dominate the charts in the late 70s. Um, but yes, give, give, give credit to the people who stuck at it. I mean, there's only a couple of shops left now in, in, in Halston, for example. There's Starlight and there's Hawkeye, which are both shrunk in size because record buying isn't a, a thing that happens anymore. People don't buy product, as I know only too well.